Well, um, we're continuing in uh, John. We're getting into chapter 7. We've uh, made ourselves out of uh, chapter 6 and kind of going into a different part of the story. Last week, uh, we looked at uh, different types of followers, uh, different types of disciples, uh, because we saw that some of the disciples of Jesus actually turned themselves back from Jesus. And we kind of looked at different types of fruit uh, that uh, different disciples have, uh, people who profess to be Christians. Uh, Because we saw that even... Uh, Many people who call themselves disciples uh, will walk away when Jesus' teachings are too hard or when his ways are too hard or when his example is too hard. And so today, as we start into chapter 7, we're going to see that also that not even his own brothers, his blood brothers, his half-brothers, Mary and Joseph's kids that were had after Jesus was born, not even his own brothers understood who he actually was didn't understand his mission. Uh, they seem to me to kind of fall underneath that, that Jesus fan type of title that we had last week, maybe some plastic fruit type of thing. They didn't really truly believe him for who he really is, what he came to do. And as we continue even down further today in chapter seven, we're going to see some more uh, Jews in the story, God-fearing Jews who genuinely want to follow God and honor him. They're, they're actually looking for the Messiah. They want to find the Messiah, and they want to follow him, but they see Jesus, and they don't want this type of Messiah. They want to try to discredit him, looking for a theological loophole for why they don't have to follow him. So today we'll be looking at the spiritual blindness of the brothers of Jesus, and also the the spiritual hypocrisy of the Jews. And so we'll be starting in chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. We'll go through a little section. I'm going to give a little running commentary here and there because we're going to cover uh, quite a few verses, so I'm just going to kind of uh, add in some little uh, footnotes here and there as we go. Uh, we'll start off in uh, verse 1 through 9, uh, and then as we continue, we'll, we'll get into the second half. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, to, to help us to see our own spiritual blindness Uh, our own spiritual hypocrisy. We don't want to just kind of look at these guys and go, gosh, these guys are crazy. What are they thinking? Uh, We want to to try to find where we're acting like some of these people do. Uh, This is one of the main reasons why this is in God's word is to show us to be a mirror for us, not just to kind of laugh and scoff at just how crazy it is, uh, but to actually say, gosh, I, I see myself there. So we want the Lord, we want the Holy Spirit to show us these things. So that we can be free from our own spiritual blindness, our own spiritual hypocrisy. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning as we uh, get into his word. Heavenly Father, we um, open your word this morning. We look forward every week to opening your word and to have your word exposed to us. To have truth exposed to our hearts and our minds. To have the light of your word shine into the, the dark parts of our hearts. Uh, the parts of our hearts that have not yet maybe fully been uh, surrendered to you, areas of our hearts that maybe have we've been uh, kind of locking you out of, we've been in some kind of denial, or hiding something, holding on to something, but we need, <laughs> we need your Holy Spirit to do this because we, uh, we can't just open our eyes on our own. This is a work of the Spirit. And so we do pray that your spirit would do this today. We might be jumping into this text thinking, I'm 
not spiritually blind. I see everything very clearly. I have no hypocrisy in my heart. But we call them blind spots because we can't see them. And so we need the help of your spirit, the sovereign work of your spirit, to show us, reveal to us parts of our lives, our hearts, our minds, our actions, our attitudes that don't glorify you, that don't resemble you, that aren't conformed to you. We thank you that you work so mightily in our hearts. So we ask all these things, not in our own authority or our own name, but in the name of Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 7, verse 1. says, after this, after the feeding of the multitude, and then as he went up to Capernaum and he preached there, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, down south, where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Okay, so since this is now the Feast of Booths, that means that this is about six months after the feeding of the multitude. Feeding of multitude was around Passover. Feast of Booths is six months later. So six months have gone by. He's been going about Galilee. He has not gone down to Judea. And his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So his brothers are saying, hey, if you want to gain a following, go down to Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths is at hand. You can go and you can do these miracles and you're teaching and we can get more followers. And it says then in verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What he's saying by that is, my time is going to be, your time is always here because you're, you're in the world. And he says this, the world cannot hate you because they're not even believers. They're part of the world. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So he's being pressured by his own brothers to go to Judea and reveal himself but Jesus didn't go right away. He didn't go with them because it wasn't the right time. He knew that some of the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Feast of Booths was a celebration that commemorated when the Hebrews were in the wilderness, going through the wilderness with Moses as he led them through. We're going to see more of that kind of tying together next week as we get into uh, the actual uh, the words that Jesus was teaching. So, uh, but today we're going to be looking at the hearts of the people at the feast Jesus' brothers, it seems that they were following him for some kind of personal gain. They saw his miracles. And these brothers most likely, just like many of Jesus' earliest followers, were probably hoping to have some kind of personal gain, some kind of political or cultural change to upend the, the current tyrannical government that they were facing. And they wanted him to lead the charge. So they urged him to go gather his following Get on that campaign trail. But this is far from what Jesus actually came to do. And last week, as we saw this sobering thought, that disciples turned their backs on Jesus. Even Jesus' own brothers were misguided. And though they followed him, though no doubt they loved him, 
It's their brother, after all. Probably had supported him physically, maybe even financially. Probably had some of his teachings memorized. Going around for months and months and grew up with the guy. They'd probably be like, oh yeah, we've heard this story before. I mean, how many of my stories have you guys heard multiple times, right? It's only been a couple years, <laughs> right? They grow up with Jesus. They probably had Jesus' words memorized. That's a good thing. So they had the word of God memorized. Maybe they even had WWJD bracelets, you know, or maybe like a little Jesus fish in the back of their camel, something like that. I don't know. They, these, these guys were probably fans of their brother. They wanted to go garner a, a, a bigger following, but they were misguided, misguided along with others who were looking for change through political means or through establishing a new physical kingdom, one that would undo this current oppressive government. They didn't believe in who he really actually was. These brothers were not born again. They, they couldn't see this clearly. They were trying to tell Jesus how to go about his ministry, how to receive the glory that they thought that he should have in the way that they thought that he should have it. And this is something they genuinely believe made the most sense for Jesus to get glory. Jesus, we want you to get glory. Go down to Jerusalem. Do it this way. I mean, how many times have you thought, have we thought, you see maybe someone famous or maybe it's someone in your life, an aunt, an uncle, whatever it might be, you say, God, you would get so much glory if that person would just come to faith. Wouldn't it be so awesome if that, that actor, that politician, whoever would come to Jesus, then God would really get glory. We think that, and we, we genuinely believe that. And that's not actually even bad thinking. What the, what the brothers are thinking is actually very logical. <laughs> There's a, you can get a huge following down there. And so we, we do these things. We wonder, God, you'd get so much glory out of my life if you gave me this opportunity that I want right now. This, this new job, this new position, this new role. You would get so much glory in my life if you would just do this for me. Or maybe we wonder why he didn't allow something happen in our life. God, why did that, why did it get passed over that? How come... Why has this been the path of my life? Wouldn't you have gotten more glory if this would have happened instead? Clearly, you'd get so much more glory if this hadn't happened to me, but rather, I'd be over here doing this. And so we, we sit there and we, we question God. If, if, God, if you would just do this in my life, you would get so much glory. If you didn't do this in my life, you would have gotten more glory. We presume to know what God would clearly desire in this world and this life, and so we go after that thing. We go after that opportunity. I think that there is something that every single believer wrestles with, and I think that's a, a sense of, of missed opportunity in life. Missed opportunity or some kind of disappointment, something in your life you feel like you've missed out on, Something has passed you by or passed you over. Maybe you made a wrong choice, took you on a different path, and now you kind of think you're perpetually out of God's will. You can't get back into God's will because you took this right-hand turn, and there's no way you could ever get back. You feel like you've missed this opportunity. 
And now you have this kind of low-grade fever, so to speak, of sadness or disappointment or frustration or bitterness or regret. It just always kind of looms there. Boy, if things were just a little different, if I wouldn't have done this or done that, or if God would have done this or that, why things would have been different. Maybe you wish you went into a different career or got a better education, or maybe you wish you didn't rack up student debt. Maybe you made a bad investment or got into a bad relationship or destroyed your marriage, made a lot of mistakes when you were younger. Maybe you resent the way that your family or kids have prevented you from accomplishing certain dreams in your life, or how they take up the time that you would rather spend differently right now in your life. We question his wisdom when we think, why did God let me fail in this if he loves me? Why didn't he fix my marriage? Why didn't he, why didn't he let me see my sin and my blind spots earlier in my life? Why didn't I get this thing that I've worked so hard for? Why did he allow this tragedy come into my life? Why does he allow the, the bad guys to succeed, my enemies, the other guy? Why didn't he intervene? And we, like his brothers, we want to be his campaign manager, telling him how he could get the most glory in our lives, because we know better. We see the Feast of Booths. Oh, there's the opportunity. We see these different things in our life. God, if you do this for me, or if you don't do this for me, then you're going to get so much glory as if we know what's best for his glory and for our joy. I've mentioned before that I'm so thankful that God has written my story and not me. I wouldn't be where I'm at in my life with the blessings of God in my life if I had written my own story. Joby had written his own story. It wouldn't look like this. It wouldn't look anything like that. It would look nothing like this. I feel like I've lived a hundred lifetimes already at 41. I feel like I've lived a hundred lifetimes of joy and memories and so many of God's blessings and just fullness of life. And my life is full. My, my home is full. My calendar is full. My, my heart is full. And I would not have written this if it was up to me. And yet, even when I'm in the midst of difficulty, hard times, stresses, anxieties, depression, things not turning out how I would like them to, situations where I wonder, why is this happening in my life? I still want to be in control and be God's campaign manager and his armchair quarterback, telling him how to make things happen, even though he has already proven to me that he can exceed my expectations. And yet I still question him. I look at what he's done in my life and I still question him. Like his brothers, sometimes I see him as a means to my end. He's supposed to serve me and prop me up rather than seeing him as truly God who does things in his wisdom and in his time. And we often have disappointments towards God and I imagine his brothers were very disappointed in him right now. And you're blowing it. This, this festival just comes up right now. This is the perfect opportunity. Why are you staying back? And he says, it's not yet my time. 
So in verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then later he went up. Not publicly, though, but in private. So Jesus does eventually go, but without the fanfare, he's kind of fashionably late, doesn't want to go when everyone else is getting there with all this hubbub. He goes privately. And I can imagine the brothers' conversations. They didn't know that he was going to go. They're probably going down. It's usually about a three-day journey down. They're probably just talking amongst themselves like, what is his problem? Why would he not take this opportunity? We, we can't talk some sense into this guy. He, he's like, he, just, he thinks he knows everything. I can imagine these conversations. So in verse 11, eventually Jesus goes down, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. But for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. They kind of just whispered to each other. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So he emerges. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled at his teaching and watching him, seeing him, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied isn't this the guy from Nazareth? How is he so smart? This makes no sense. So Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but it's his who sent me, speaking of the Father. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? They were plotting against him, but now that they've kind of been out of there going, no, 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 we don't know what you're talking about. Who's, who's plotting to kill you? But they did. They were trying to hide it. Jesus answered them, I did one work. Speaking of a few months before that, when he healed uh, the, the man at the pool. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is actually from Moses, he says, it's actually from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So, so here, here's what's going on. Here's what he's saying. So when a baby, when a Jewish baby boy is born, the parents, by the law of Moses, they're supposed to circumcise that baby boy on the eighth day, even if that eighth day landed on the Sabbath. Now, normally, the Sabbath is the day of rest. You don't do any work. In circumcision, that's some work. So normally, you wouldn't be able to do that kind of work. But to fulfill the law of Moses, you were allowed to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day, even if it was on the Sabbath even though you're not supposed to work, you're not supposed to do anything. So here, they're trying to catch Jesus on a technicality. You can't heal on the Sabbath. You just broke God's law. Even though they know that there are exceptions and that they themselves actually live out these, these, these exceptions. So they're looking at him, trying to judge him by something they don't even judge themselves by. You can't do that. And he's like, but... Don't you do that? And it's actually allowed. So I do one thing, one thing, and you're trying to catch me on a technicality? 
So what does he say to their hypocrisy? He says in verse 24, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So here again, in addition to the brothers and the guys we saw, the disciples from last week, we see even more rejection of Jesus. These are religious Jews who want to obey God and his law, but like his brothers, they don't like Jesus's radical message. He probably had some hard sayings. We're going to see some of these next week, some more of them. They want a learned, educated leader with political savvy, charismatic, bold. But here's Jesus walking lowly, humbly, not coming into town during the big feast with a grand entrance and lots of pomp and circumstance, beating his chest in public. Instead, he's showing compassion to the outcasts, even to sinners and lawbreakers. He's healing the outcasts and the destitute and the oppressed. He's teaching about laying your life down for others, even laying your life down for your enemies. His example is not the one that these Jews want. I mean, they'd have to say to themselves, well, if he is the Messiah, that means we have to do the same thing. We have to humble ourselves, serve others, lay our life down for our enemies. We don't want to do that. And so they're trying to disqualify him on technicalities so they can get out of following him. See, typically as, as humans, when we don't like a certain message, we look for loopholes. We look for a way out. Something makes us uncomfortable. Something convicts us or challenges us. Well, did, did Jesus really say that? I mean, really? Is that what he really meant when he said that? Is that what the Bible really actually says? Or maybe sometimes we'll actually, okay, I, I know I shouldn't do that, but then our four favorite words, but this is different. I know that's sin, but in my case, it's not. This is different. That's exactly how the first sin entered into the world. Satan said to Eve, did God really say that? Questioning God's word. Our inner lawyer comes out trying to get us off the hook. See, our, our flesh is like an insurance company agent. All right, you guys know what the job of an insurance company agent is? You know, you know what his job is? Is there a job is? It, it's, it's not to help you get covered when things go wrong. That's not their job. Their job is to get out of covering you. That's their job, right? And whenever you've dealt with an insurance company, you find out all the fine print, whatever, their job is to find out how to not cover you for whatever happened in your life just now. That's their job, is to save the company money, not to give you money. That's not their job. Their job is to save the company money. Our flesh is exactly like that. Our flesh works hard to find the fine print the theological technicalities to get us out of paying out. We don't want to pay out in obedience. So our flesh, our inner lawyer, our inner insurance agent goes to work to find the loophole so we don't have to pay out. And we're good at it. We're so good at, we're so good at justifying our desires, our attitudes, our sin the things going on in our hearts. We're so good at finding the loophole, finding the technicality, finding the fine print. And so here are these Jews, they find themselves condemning Jesus on these technicalities. Okay, okay, yeah, he healed. 
But he healed on the Sabbath, so I mean, we can't follow him. He, he must not actually be from God, if that's the case. The disciples in Galilee did that too. He calls them to follow him, take him in as bread. Well, yeah, you brought bread down from heaven, okay, but, but what else you got? I mean, Moses, he fed us for 40 years. I mean, you gotta do more than that. You gotta really prove yourself. If you can only do one meal, then clearly you're not from God. We're not gonna follow you and take you in as our bread. And we just kind of kick the can down the road, putting off true obedience, true submission, true surrender, because it's just too hard. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And church, we ought not to be fooled. As I said last week, to really truly follow the real Jesus, his actual teachings and his actual example is difficult. If Jesus walked the earth today, here in the United States of America, I think that he would have a lot of hard sayings for us. A lot of hard sayings for us. All of us. All of us. You are not exempt. Don't, don't think about your neighbor right now. <laughs> don't think about the people who disagree with you. Don't, don't think about the, the other hypocrites in your life. All of us. Jesus would have some hard words and hard teachings and actions that would be rejected by many professing Christians. You know, last week we saw the, the, the GMO type fruit, the self-righteous disciples, then the Jesus fans with the plastic fruit and the, the no-change Christians like Judas. But here in this story here, we're seeing also these kind of everyday Jews that are like today's church-going Christians. And like the Jews here, they're, they're looking for the Savior, just not wanting to obey all of his teachings, trying to find their way out, find the loophole. They don't want to follow his example of humility and self-denial. Instead, they're trying to, to, to find the fine print, to get out of the hard things, to get out of that, that type of attitude that goes along with the example of Christ. Or we see also disciples looking for a political solution, putting their political agenda at the forefront of their minds and hearts, letting their, their politics actually shape their theology. Or also we see even in this story, a, a politically correct agenda. And these guys are playing gotcha with Jesus, theological gotcha, trying to find, oh, gotcha. All right, we're seeing a first century version here of cancel culture with these Jews. Hey, you can preach against the other guys, the Romans. You can preach against the, the Gentiles. You can preach against the Samaritans. But what you just said about us Jews, that's offensive. Cancel culture. We don't have to follow you. We don't have to listen to this. They don't mind when he preaches against the other people, but as soon as he turns the preaching towards them, canceled. We have these types of people in the New Testament, and we have them here in 2020. This isn't a new thing we're seeing today in 2020. What's going on, it seems crazy because we're not used to it being this explosive, but this isn't just a 2020 thing. I suspect that every single one of us would have a hard time hearing some of his teachings and walking in some of his ways if they were applied to today, as they should be. We love for Jesus to point out the other guy's idolatries who are on the other side of the aisle, or maybe your neighbor across the street who has loud parties on Fridays or whatever it might be, or the people in our school, our school systems that teach this and teach that, and we just, we just kind of look down our noses at them. 
our relatives who don't live the way we do. We, we love when Jesus points out the other guy's idolatries or the world's idolatries. We love hearing preachers preach about the world's sins and the world's idolatries and the world's problems and the world's broken morality, but we don't like hearing about ours. We don't have any. We're Christians. We don't have any. And like the Jews here trying to disqualify Jesus, we focus, just like the Jews are here, we focus on the speck in the other person's eye. Yet we fail to see the plank in our own. You healed on the Sabbath. You can't do that. We actually think that everyone else has a plank in their eye and they just don't see it because they're just so blinded. Yet we don't think that we could possibly have any blind spots. And so Jesus says in verse 24, don't judge by appearances. Don't judge by what you can just see. You've got, you've got your face in front of your eyes. You've got, a, you've got a plank in your eye. Don't just judge by appearances. You've got a plank in your eye. Judge with right judgment. In Matthew chapter 7, he says something very similar. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you're also going to be judged by that same judgment. With the measure you use, whatever standard you use to judge people, he says, that same measure is going to be used against you. Church, that is one scary verse if there ever was one. Think about all the times you have judged someone else. That same measure, that same standard, that same attitude, that's, that's what's going to be judged against you. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But you don't know it's the log that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye, brother? Well, there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So don't just judge by appearances. You can't even see right, but judge with right judgment. And so back in John, Jesus calls them out. Moses gave the law to you, and you speak so highly of Moses, but you break the law of Moses. And yet, you're looking at one thing that I did when I healed a guy and you're judging me? You hypocrites. You're crazy. Why are you focused on what you think is a speck in my eye when you've got this massive log of breaking Moses' law all the time? Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Not only that, he says, and you yourself lawfully circumcised on the Sabbath, but you accuse me of breaking the Sabbath because I healed a guy on the Sabbath who's been paralyzed his whole life. You are so hypocritical. You judge me by a certain standard that you actually, you do that very thing. You, you have this massive plank in your eye. You, you, you're not even judging rightly. You're allowed to do this, but I'm not. You guys are hypocrites. I mean, the fickle nature of the human heart. Look what he says in Matthew 11. He says, what shall I compare this generation? What's this generation? What does it remind me of? Oh, I know. It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to the playmates. This was probably some kind of song like Ring Around the Posy or something like that. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. He says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking... And so they say, this generation says, he has a demon. 
So then the Son of Man comes, eating and drinking, very opposite of John the Baptist, and they say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom, he says, is justified by her deeds. So he's saying, look, I sent John, living a super conservative life, super religious, a goody two-shoes kind of a guy. You thought he was a little bit too extreme, a Jesus freak. That didn't please you. So then I come, I come the opposite. I'm enjoying life, I'm eating with the sinners, I'm hanging out with them and befriending sinners and, and with the morally bankrupt people and you accuse me of partaking in that sin just because I'm with them. He's one of them, look at him, hanging out with them. He says, you're acting like children, you people just can't be pleased. I, I, I sent John who lived this way, that doesn't make you happy. I come this way, the opposite, that doesn't make you happy. You guys can't be pleased, you're hypocrites. And so he says, but wisdom is justified by her deeds. Which is similar to what he says in verse 24 of John chapter 7. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You judge me based on dining with sinners? You, you, you judge me based on washing the feet of sinners? So you think that I'm one of them just because I'm serving them? Letting them rest their head on my chest? forgiving their sins, healing them. You, you think that just because of that, that I'm one of them? You, you guys judge with right judgment. Look at my life. Look at the wholeness of my life, not just by appearances. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, what are the deeds of Jesus? He came to show mercy to sinners, to actually dine with them, to engage with them, to let them lean into his chest and even wash their feet, and even, heaven forbid, become their friends, to actually love them, even his own enemies, and even worse, he, he would heal these outcasts on a Sabbath. The appearance alone is scandalous to the self-righteous Jews. The optics of this are campaign crushing. What is he thinking? He's gonna ruin his reputation. The self-righteous Jews could not handle this kind of scandal. This angered the Jews, not just the Pharisees. He says, this whole generation. And we're in a day and age that isn't much different. After all, humanity doesn't really change that much. I mean, we all know 2020 has been surprising and shocking. I saw a, a meme the other day. I'm sure you've seen plenty of pretty awesome memes about 2020. Saw one that said, what if 2020 is just the trailer for 2021? Yeah, yeah I know, right? <laughs> and it's funny, right? <laughs> and very scary. <laughs> but church, listen, what, what if it's actually true? And I don't mean murder hornets or pandemics or racial tensions or vitriolic political culture, everything. I'm not talking about those outward things. I'm not talking about that. But what if 2020 and what we're seeing in 2020 is just a trailer to show us where we're headed when it comes to what's being exposed in our hearts? That's what I'm more concerned about. What if 2020 is just a trailer to show us what's actually coming as we've been seeing these things come out of us, our idolatries, our loyalties, our attitudes, how we treat each other, how we give up on each other, how we let our politics divide us, even as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. 
What if 2020 is just a preview exposing how we don't judge with right judgment, but just based on appearances? I'll admit I have been, I've been disappointed, I've been saddened by the, the capital C church, by Christians on, on both sides of the political aisle. And in church, I am preaching to myself right now because I get sucked in. It's everywhere. I, it's everywhere. So I'm preaching to myself here. And we can be so appalled at how it's going out there. We can be appalled at the, the debate on Tuesday. We can say, oh, I can't believe two grown men, leaders, the way they talk to each other. But the reality is, so many Christians talk like this. And, and, and if not, on a public stage, it's what we think in our hearts about the other guy, about the people that we don't agree with. We often have a bad case of plank in the eye. In our hearts, we, we think that way towards our opponents. In our, our blog reading and our podcast listening, we nod in agreement when they're bashing the other side. Yeah, yeah, we're getting all riled up. In our private conversations with others, though maybe it's conversations with those who agree with us, so it's not necessarily how we talk to those that we disagree with, but it's about how we talk about those that we disagree with. It's not just what we think, it's, it's how we talk about other people. What we think about other people. But when the dust settles and when you look at God's word, now we see that sinners have always responded to life. You see even the believers in John chapter six and seven, how they've responded to the hard sayings of Jesus. How they've responded when his campaign doesn't look how they would want his campaign to look. How they've responded to him coming in to expose our own idols and sin and desire for self-sufficiency and self-preservation. We see how they've often responded to him when he calls them to lay down their lives and serve in humility. And when you look at all that stuff, you see in God's word, 2020 isn't really that shocking. I mean, really. We look at what's going on, we go, well, yeah, this has been going on for thousands of years. This is the condition of the human heart. And so when I read this story in John chapter 7, John chapter 6, I actually find an odd comfort. I think through, as I read the story, I think through what Jesus had to have been thinking, maybe feeling, hearing his own brothers, misunderstanding, them trying to manipulate his game plan and missing the point, or, or having to always engage with the Jews, the people that he was actually sent to save, and how they're always playing a game of theological gotcha with him, trying to find loopholes. I, I, I thought about what, what, what is going through his mind. What's going through his heart as he's seeing these people that he was sent to, to lay his life down for? And they just do these things. They, they react this way. And I, I thought about this a lot because, honestly, I, I, I feel this a lot. Preach against the other guys, pastor. Preach against the bad guys. Just don't call us out. But do you realize who Jesus actually preached to the most? It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the Gentiles. It wasn't his disciples, it wasn't the Jews. You know who Jesus preached to the most? The people that were right in front of him. Whoever they were. But when he was standing right in front of people, that's who he preached to. And that might sound obvious, but that wasn't obvious to them. They wanted to preach to the people that weren't there. Don't tell us about us, tell us about them. So it seems obvious, right? He, he preached mostly to the people that were right in front of him but it's not obvious to them and it's not obvious to us. 
we want Jesus and we want the pastors and we want the guys on talk radio. We want them to preach about the other guys, not us. We're good. We're good. No, they've got the speck in their eye. It's not obvious to us. But church, I'm not here to preach to them, whoever they are. I don't even know who they are, but I'm not here to preach to them. I'm here to preach to us. I'm here to preach to me. I need this. Now, if I ever get to stand in front of them, I'll preach to them. But if I'm preaching in front of you, I'm preaching to you. I'm preaching to us. I'm preaching to get us to look at the log in our own eye first. And I wish our, our news cycle and our social media feeds would do that for us too, but they don't. Jesus had to have been discouraged and saddened when he would speak straight to the heart of his crowd and they would listen, but they wouldn't hear. But he knew to expect it and somehow as he sought solitude with his father and stayed committed to the will of his father for the joy set before him, he continued. And so the comfort that I find in this is even as I sense a, a sort of a, a weight of sadness and tension that he probably felt, he's going off into solitude to pray. He walks down to Jerusalem, possibly alone. The comfort that I find here is that he kept going. He faithfully endured. He didn't give up, even when their hearts were hardened. He didn't give up on the Father's will, clearly. And that means he also didn't give up on pursuing and faithfully enduring with these stubborn, rebellious, self-righteous, self-preserving sinners. He did not give up on them. Now, church, eventually, after his death and resurrection, Jesus' brothers became believers. And they became church leaders. And they even gave up their lives for the gospel of their brother. Jesus faithfully endured. He did not give up on them, even though they were blind, they were hypocrites, they rejected him in any which way, but he did not give up. 2020 has been discouraging, but Jesus has not given up on his church. He's not given up on me. Me, who I would love to be his campaign manager. I would, I would love that, that job. But he faithfully endures with me, even in my cynicism, my self-preservation, my disappointments, my regrets. He promises to finish what he has started in me. And following Jesus means letting him expose your sin. Not, not the other guy's sin. He'll do that too. But following Jesus means letting him expose your sin, your blind spots, your comforts, your preferences, your inner lawyer, your justification of sinful attitudes, your past disappointments, your weaknesses, your wishing that things were different, your desire for the praise of man, your desire to put your trust in man or trust in politics, your misguided desires, your, your missed opportunities and regrets, your wishful thinking, your judgmentalism, the way your flesh has been like your personal insurance agent getting you out of having to obey Jesus and all of his hard sayings. These church, these are our idols. These are the planks in our eyes, our blind spots, our hypocrisies, our self-righteousness. He didn't come to just make your life awesome and comfortable and be your genie in the bottle. 
He came to lower himself, humble himself, serve and wash the feet of sinners, dine with and befriend the outcasts, the bad guys, to recline at the table with them, even lay his own life down for them, and he calls us to do the same. Because church, remember, one of them, one of those guys, was you. One of those guys was me. And he has saved us to send us. You've been saved for the purpose of taking that message of reconciliation out to those guys. And we ought to be taking the cue and the example of Jesus, hearing and obeying his teachings and his example and his attitude, being slow to speak, quick to listen, lowly and meek, quick to look for the log in our own eye before looking and trying to find the speck in the other person's eye. But this takes a work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. We can't do this in our own self-strength. If we do that, we'll just become more self-righteous. We need the Holy Spirit to lead us into his truth and that his truth would set us free. I want to pray and I want to ask the Lord to have mercy on our church and on the capital C church. I'm gonna ask them to have mercy on our country. Believers, non-believers, Republican, Democrat. I wanna ask the Lord to have mercy on us, to help us, to humble ourselves before Almighty God. To lay our life down for him first and for people second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your son came to do your will. And he remained faithful to doing your will. He faithfully endured with disciples who turned their backs on him. Peter who denied him. Washed the feet even of Judas knowing he'd betray him. putting up with the blindness of his own brothers, knowing that someday they'll see and they'll believe. But in that moment right there, you just, somehow you endured with such patience your whole entire earthly life. You never got to see them come to faith in your earthly life. But you faithfully endured with them and you loved them even through their blindness God, would, would you give us more and more of that, that, that gift of humility and meekness, being a peacemaker, a minister of reconciliation. Help us to, to, to see our own blindness, to see our own spiritual hypocrisy, to see our, our, the way that we judge others the way we talk about others, the way we think about others. We don't, we don't think and judge rightly. We've got this, this plank in our eye, idols in our hearts. Lord, help us to judge with right judgment. To speak the truth in love.
Lord, in all this, I am just so thankful that you are patient with us. I'm so thankful that you will not give up on us. Help us all to have that same resolve for each other. To be committed to one another. To love one another. To serve one another. Lord, we need help. Help our country, our neighbors, our friends, our our family members. Our friends and our enemies. Help us, especially those who are of the faith, that even when we have disagreements in in any number of things, uh, that we would um, just seek unity and having peace between us and other brothers and sisters. God, have mercy on us. Give us your grace. We need it desperately. We thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray and ask all these things. Amen.